right, good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Good, good to see you. I'm doing okay. I always hear Sharon's voice. I recognize it. Thank you. I'm doing okay. Uh, thank you again to our worship team for leading us. Man, that last song was perfect, the perfect setup of what we're going to focus on in this uh, in this next teaching series and to, I hope, uh, to marvel at uh, the goodness and mercy and grace of God for us. How can it be? This, this freedom that we have found in Christ. But before I get ahead of myself, excited, uh, let's go ahead and release our kids for Revolution Kids this morning. All right. I think you guys are going to have a fun time together. All right. So I'm um, very excited uh, about our new teaching series this morning as we begin the season of Lent, uh, which of course this is the first Sunday in Lent, 40-day period that begins with Ash Wednesday. Is this too close? That's a new, okay, I just keep feeling that, you know, probably not just in my head, but you all can tell me it is, <laughs> it's fine. Begins with Ash Wednesday, this period of 40 days, <laughs> thank you, 40 days Leading up to Easter, it's, it's traditionally, historically, a period of preparation, of reflection, confession, repentance, that prepares our hearts to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ once, once again. This, is a, this season in the life of the church is actually a gift for us. Uh, even though there are some maybe particular traditions, it, it usually feels a little bit more somber or penitential, some traditions you know, won't say the, the words hallelujah in worship. Uh, it's supposed to be sort of a focus on our own, our own sin and, and deep need for divine grace. But this season is a gift for us. I really believe it is. It's a gift of us, a gift to us individually and collectively as a church to pause, to breathe deep. To create space in the chaos of our busy schedules and lives and just disordered, just chaos of the world that we find ourselves in for, for sort of time and space for intentional spiritual practices that will draw us closer to God. That's the gift of this season. Intentional spiritual practices that will draw us closer to God. Hebrews 12, 1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. The second verse, not on the screen, says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I've brought this passage up many times in the last couple of months. We've talked about it. We've talked about what it means to run our race, our journey of faith with perseverance, to press on toward that goal of union with God, that divine love. We've talked about what it means to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, right? The prize of Christ crucified. We've even talked about earlier in the church calendar what it means to be surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. It's traditionally what we think about when All Saints Sunday. We think about what it means to be surrounded by this, the living saints, the support of people around us, encouraging us on in our faith. And you think of like the road race where people are cheering you on or the people running with you, keeping pace. 
It also includes the the saints of the beyond, the great cloud of those who have gone before us in faith and still set the example for what a faithful life can look like. We've talked about these things in this passage. But what about that little part in the middle? That part about laying aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. It would seem that according to this scripture, if we want to run our race well, we've got to talk about sin as well. If we want to really run with endurance, we've got to talk about those things that cling so closely, that trip us up, that keep us from running the race that we want to, or even in the direction that we want to, or the race at all that we want to. There's many layers to this metaphor. Today, I think, uh, in, in our maybe American culture or the climate of the church, you can you, there's a tendency to fall into sort of two categories. I've mentioned this if you're here on Ash Wednesday. When it comes to talking about sin in the church, it can be uncomfortable. Because I think, I think we fall into two categories sort of as American church. We either talk about it way too much, like borderline obsessed with it, and we talk about it so much it's like, coming up with a list of particular behaviors to avoid, but mostly to identify and other people, which ultimately just leads to, like, excluding folks from the table of grace. We can become so obsessed with it that it's all we talk about in a very not great way, or in an effort to just sort of not offend at all, to not rock the boat, uh, to want to sort of keep a, a sense of peace and harmony. We just don't talk about it at all. In fear of offending, maybe in fear of of being wrong, getting caught up in culture wars, you name it, there's a tendency maybe too then to just not talk about sin at all. I can tell you there's a bit of uh, prayerful trembling happening for me. Please be praying for us and for the church and for me during this series because I'm excited about it. You know, uh, if it's not a lot of pressure here, but it's it's you. We step into this sort of tension, if you hear what I'm saying. This tension of either talking about it way too much, or not at all. And yet, Scripture tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That Jesus has come to redeem us from the works of the law, to forgive our sins, to set us free. Even uh, Jesus says, "It's not the healthy who need a doctor." That was out of order. My bad. It was not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Luke 5.31, in order to walk this life of faith well, we have to admit that, hey, we we are sick, that we need help, that we are in need of divine grace. Turns out Jesus only saves sinners. It's good news. We've got to admit that we, too, are sinners. St. Augustine uh, was a bishop in the church in North Africa in the 3rd and 4th centuries. I'll be drawing on him over the course of the next couple of weeks because he has a lot of great theological discourse of such, of talking about sin. Also sort of funny as well. So he's a priest, 3rd, 4th century, uh, becomes a bishop in North Africa. But before he becomes a priest, um, you know, he, he has sort of a vibrant youth, youthful time. He's very well acquainted, he would say, with sin. And he, before becoming a priest, he's kind of, you know, funnily now known or famously known uh, of praying, Lord, make me chaste, 
but not yet. <laughs> Lord, make me celibate. I know I'm called to be a priest, but not yet. Right? So he's kind of he's kind of funny in that way. But has a really, really great uh, sort of theological discourse of sin and how it works in our lives. Uh, and he basically says this. He says, he, he echoes Paul in saying that we can't even do or even know good and do good without the grace of God at work in us. He said this is what happened in creation. We were created in the image of God, humanity. We were right with God. We were experiencing freedom. And for, for him, true freedom was that ability to cleave to God and to love God rightly. It is to know and do the good. But then you remember, Adam and Eve were tempted. They ate of the tree, of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and sin entered the story. The fall as we know it, the great fall from, from right relationship with God. And because of the fall, he said that freedom that we had, that, that sort of, he talks about the, the essence, of that sort of sense of self as being a will, like the human will that was perfectly aligned with God before. That because sin has entered in, now our will has become sort of bent. It's broken. Our human nature curved toward sinning. So the funny words that he uses that I just think are fun, he, we were, that our human will was rightly aligned with God. It was, it was rectitude, straight, and now it's curvatus, curved in on itself, curved. We can't fix that on our own. We can't heal ourselves. We need a divine healer. We think of that curve then as prone to sinning, prone to sinning, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the one, the God that I love. We can't even know good and do good without grace first working within us. So this sin, this sin that clings so closely, it must be identified so that it can be confessed, so that we can be redeemed, so that we can continue to grow closer with God in our journeys. So the way that I want to go about this in the next couple of weeks, I know I'm really setting it up, our sort of depravity here, but the way that I want us to go about it uh, is to look at the seven vices. Maybe more famously known, I'm so glad you're excited, as the seven deadly sins. If you come from a Catholic background, you're probably maybe already uncomfortable. <laughs> you're like, here we go. Here we go. Not this again. But listen, to talk about these, not because they are sort of deadlier than other things or to make us feel, you know, just sort of rub our faces in our, in our mistakes and our mess-ups, but because I believe these seven vices can actually offer a really good framework for us to consider the everyday, mundane, going about our lives, sins that cling so closely. Like we have a tendency when we talk about sin too much in church to uh, rank them, if you will, right? Like, okay, as long as I'm not murdering people and I'm not cheating on my spouse, I'm good, right? But then Jesus says, if you look at someone with hate in your heart, you've murdered them. You're like, okay, well, that's not really true because we wouldn't end up in prison. But what he's saying is that sin is sin is sin. 
It's anything that separates from us from God. It's anything that clings too closely. It's anything that trips us up on our goal of holiness, of becoming more Christ-like. So these seven vices, first penned by the monastics and the early desert fathers, think about they were well acquainted with maybe the vices of what impeded their communal life together. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're away in monasteries that you would say, well, they don't have that many temptations. Like, think about the world that we live in. And yet they, were, they knew that at the core of human nature are these sort of tendencies, these, these traits, these seven vices. They're known today as pride, anger, greed, sloth, lust, gluttony, and envy. No, I'm not going to skip any of them. <laughs> I thought about it. I decided I probably shouldn't. <laughs> so we're going to use these. We're going we're gonna to look at one or two each week as a framework for us to do a little bit of self-work, for us to do a little bit of self-reflection, self-examination, led by the Holy Spirit, not me, but by the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to convict us, to say, hey, is there anything within me that is just not right, that I'm getting tripped up on here? Now, when we talk about these, vice and sin is often interchangeable. Seven deadly vices, seven deadly sins, or the seven vices. It's not quite right, um, but you might hear me interchange them a little bit. Um, Sin is more about like, particular expressions of these vices okay so if think about it this way there's there's some of you are going to come up to me afterwards that were raised in the catholic church and be like yeah you got that about half right um and i acknowledge that (laughs) like as i was reading and preparing for this they've been referred to as the primary vices or sins or the capital vices and really what this means is the capital vices name the set of vices that grow out of pride and tend to proliferate additional sin Okay, so in the Catholic Church, I think, this is in Latin, or like not our language. So it's a tree. You don't need to see the words. But if you think about each branch is a vice that grows out of a root of sin and evil, right? The sin and evil of pride first as the root for like these multitude of sins. So here it is. Again, there's different. Yeah, we're ready. Come on up. Yeah. There is the tree. That was your cue. Yes. Uh, so yeah it's great we're having a break this Sunday we haven't done it in a while can you tell uh, from me uh, so see this <laughs> it's okay um we're yeah this is gonna fit perfectly for the first sins we're gonna talk about it's so great um you can see that there's breakdowns here like I'm not gonna get into the weeds of that but I want you to understand is that the vices then they refer to sort of the character traits the defects, the flaws that make us prone to sin. So these, these vices of pride and of envy and of gluttony and of greed, they, there's like a million more sins that grow out of the expression of those vices, of our natures being sort of curved and broken and bent toward sin. Paul says, I know the good, but I cannot do it. I cannot do the good that I want to, but the bad, the evil, that's what I continue to do. This is our framework then. Each week, looking at one or two, inviting you to meet us halfway. This is, this is the work with you and God, led by the Holy Spirit, to pray this prayer. This is our prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I want that prayer to be on our hearts, on our minds, on our lips throughout this whole time. Because as we look at each one of these, uh, of being prompted of, of where do I need to make a change? Where am I falling into these traps? Where is Christ calling me? Healing me, redeeming me, preparing me for that true freedom that is coming this Easter season. All right, now we're gonna, we're gonna worship the one, the author and perfecter of our faith, the source of this grace, as we take a moment before launching into that first vice. Let's, let's worship.
has come still my soul will sing your praise unending ten thousand years and then forevermore forevermore bless the Lord oh my soul oh my soul I worship collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Philippians 2, do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to only his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Lastly, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Thomas Aquinas, quoting Ecclesiastes 10, summarized all of this by saying, Pride is the beginning of all sin. Pride is the beginning of all sin. C.S. Lewis even referred to it as the essential vice, the utmost evil, because it leads to every other vice, as I've already said. It is the root from which all other sin grows. It is enmity between you and God and you and others. We know this. We're well acquainted with it. You know, we talk about how we shouldn't be self-centered, and yet that's the only way that we can see and operate in this world from our own sense and place of self. And so it's this sort of balancing act, this sort of check-in of still considering the needs of others, of not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to, of walking humbly with our God. One of the three things required of us, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Why is pride the beginning of all sin? Well, it's pretty obvious it requires self-centeredness. Pride is that feeling, of course, of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from our own achievements, the achievements of those with whom we are closely associated or from qualities or possessions that are widely admired. It's sense of, a sense of, own, uh, of one's own sort of dignity, but not in, a, not in a grounded way, not in a respectful way. Right, respecting one's purpose and dignity. This is really a tricky thing, and I'm already kind of touching on it, because in our world today, a pride can often sort of sound like a virtue. Right? Like it's good to tell our kids that we're proud of them. That develops with, within them a, a healthy self-worth, right? And self self-confidence. You may even say that we are proud to be American or proud to be from Kentucky or proud to be a you know a wildcat. Proud to be a cardinal, <laughs> right? We there's almost virtue. Maybe not this year. It's okay. Sorry, that wasn't in the notes. <laughs> it, you you can hear that sometimes it's it, it's presented as a virtue that it's it's good to be proud of ourselves or things that we have done or accomplished or worked for. It's a tricky thing. It's a slippery slope. Maybe it's a fine balance of developing a healthy sense of worth and respect and encouraging especially our, our young ones as they are developing their own sense of self and ego lord knows kids have just come out of the womb pretty self-centered right they're very needy thinking only of themselves 
I have no idea. <laughs> you know, but, but so we still have to develop it. But we also got to knock them down a few pegs, <laughs> give them some humility, right? It's a fine balance. But it's, okay, pride is love that ought to be given only to God, but that's given to the self as if the self were God. Okay, that's sort of going to be our rule of thumb as I get back on track. It's love that ought to be given only to God, taking pride in something. Love supposed to be given only to God that's actually given to the self as if the self were God. It's misdirected love. It's love sort of perverted or misapplied. A love that focuses on the self and its own achievements instead of on the gifts of God or the needs of a neighbor. Sort of maybe taking even credit for the gifts that God has actually given us. Thinking of oneself as higher than we ought to or forgetting the reminder of the Jewish proverb that said, God is God and we are not. God is creator, we are created. God is God and we are not. C.S. Lewis also says in Mere Christianity, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. Eesh. I like almost didn't share that because I was like, that can't be true. <laughs> A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. I'm right here with you, friends. Eesh. Pride is misdirected love. Love of self, worship of self, misdirected, misguided even worship. Pride left unchecked then, sort of this is a vice, a framework, a bent toward more sinning. If, it, if it's left unchecked, it can grow into arrogance, into conceit, self-infatuation, uncharity, judgment, all the other sins. <laughs> it's the root of all kinds of evil. But you know, historically, there were seven, eight vices throughout time. Pride was listed, like I said, on that trunk as the root. So there were actually seven total, not counting pride. But throughout time, we've sort of replaced it or sort of put it on the same level of vainglory. Has anyone heard of that one before, vainglory? We're not as familiar with it today in modern times. We think it's interchangeable with pride. Again, it was actually one of the original seven, not including pride as the trunk of that tree. But now if you look at lists today and in our modern times, it's sort of switched throughout church history that we're more familiar with the first vice being pride. But just for a second, because we're having so much fun talking about really easy things, I'm going to take it a step further and talk about vainglory. Similar to pride, used interchangeable, not quite the same. It's related, but what makes vainglory distinct from pride is the love of the show. So prideful people want superior status or, or more than anything else. You know, you sort of want to be you know, thought of as number one, self-centered, you think of yourself uh, uh, the most, uh, seeking greatness in ways uh, that appropriately belong only to God, right? Like taking credit for things that really are, should only uh, be given to God. The vainglorious, on the other hand, seek whatever, will, seek whatever will bring in the most attention and applause. So it's like being proud of achievements, 
but then, you know, sort of cranked up an, a notch of desiring that applause, that attention, that affirmation, the glory that comes from your achievements. So it's not just simply being proud of what you've done, but then desiring and even doing things that will bring the most attention, the most applause, whether it's excellent and deserving or not. Pride names the desire for exalted status. Vainglory is the desire for recognition of that status. Do you sort of hear that difference? It seeks attention and approval and acclaim. So here it's your public image is everything. How you are perceived by others, what others think of you. And not just, you know, to, to think highly of you, but to tell you. <laughs> Vainglory. To tell you. It's, the self-image is, is central here. Seeking the praise and recognition for what we do, for how we act, for what we look like for what we achieve. So the vice preys on then sort of two desires that we have, that we all sort of have this uh, desire to be well thought of by others and also to think well of ourselves. Again, there's a healthy self-worth there. That's not pride of thinking well of ourselves, deserving of that baseline amount of respect. And then there's pride and then like, ooh, up the ante, <laughs> vainglory. But also that desire that we want others to think well of us, too. Like, I think we were probably all taught growing up, don't care about what other people think. And it was said so often because we all care about what other people think. <laughs> it's inex inescapable, almost. A lot of how we operate in the world is based on the feedback and the response that we get from the other social beings that are around us. We want to be thought of well. We want to be liked. We want to be respected for that baseline amount of self-worth that we are owed. Right? But the vainglory takes it to the next level and is operating from that place of doing everything for the attention, for the praise, for the glory from other people, from that approval. So some ways that we might see this play out in our modern world these from a source. These are not personal examples. <laughs> a source called Glittery Vices by Rebecca DeYoung. If you follow along with the uh, house group lesson plans this week, you'll see a couple quotes, probably throughout the next couple of weeks, a couple quotes from this source. These are a couple places that Rebecca DeYoung says <laughs> how, how this vice can take form in our modern world today. Maybe it's exaggerating something you have done or made something up to impress those listening. Have you ever done that? Like just like ex over-exaggerating, you know, like just the story a little bit to impress the people who are listening to you. It's sharing something witty or maybe false about another person or sharing something simply to see how f so that others can see how funny and entertaining we are. At that point, I threw the book, okay? I was like, I'm personally offended by that one. Because <laughs> you know I like to crack jokes. It's not so that you all think how funny and entertaining I am, but I thought, oh, you're getting a little too close to home here. Maybe it's doing something good in anticipation of others noticing, that maybe we don't even do it unless other people know we're going to do it. Integrity is doing what's right when no one else is watching. Vainglory 
is doing something right or good only when people are watching. Maybe it's doing something wrong or illegal or foolish because we want attention from a certain crowd. We're seeking their approval, their acceptance, no matter what it is, no matter what the cost. That's sort of what plagues, I think, youth today of trying to fit in, right? We're not going to tell them they're being vainglorious, but we see it living out in our world today. Maybe it's the worry of a performance or a task because we feel overly concerned about gaining the approval of others. That feeling of dread or stress, that pressure of leading up to something big in our lives, a presentation, a task, because we we desperately need the approval of of whoever's going to be listening. It's doing something good to get the attention for it, but then it's taking all the credit for ourselves. Right? Like, failing to to mention any mentors or any supporters or even God, the giver of all good gifts. It's this idea of taking all of the credit for ourselves. Okay, you get it. You get it. It's finding glory in things other than the goodness of God. I mean, the two words of vainglory are vain and glory. Seeking to glorify or, or to be glorified in a way that should only be reserved for God. Vain. Maybe caring about, uh, obsessing about, being consumed by things that really don't matter in the long run. How we look. How people accept us or see our, our worth based on how we look and how we dress and what we drive and the promotion that we got. Like in the kingdom of heaven, I'm not sure all of that matters as much as we think it does in the world today. So at the end of each teaching... Over the next couple weeks, I'm going to end with some questions of self-reflection for you to take today as we pray into our time of confession for communion, but also to take with you as you go this week. Again, if you're going to be digging deeper in our Renault lesson groups, some of that's going to be there. But this is for each of us, too, um, to be praying that Psalm 139 every day, to maybe practice some some self-evaluation, some some self-reflection, and asking some questions like this. How much do the things really matter? Appearances, approvals, accomplishments. How much do these things really matter? To what lengths should I go to impress others? And whose approval am I really desiring? Left unchecked, vainglory can bring forth hypocrisy, boastfulness, love of novelties, So that's sort of like doing the latest and newest trendy thing to win the recognition and applause of others. And many more. Whose approval are we really desiring? Another way to ask these things would be, who is the glory for? Will what I care about right now still matter five to ten years from now or in eternity? Maybe that is a better way to ask that. Will this impact the kingdom of God? And whose approval am I seeking and why? It's just a quick story before I close this in prayer. When I was applying for commissioning as a clergy person in the United Methodist Church, it's like, it's a kind of a long process. And I was applying this, the semester I was graduating from Divinity School at Duke. And there's 
feel like I complain about a lot of things. I don't mean to. There's a lot of work that they make you do. (laughs) It's like a lot of things that you have to turn in and and answer and, and be evaluated for. And there was a tremendous amount of pressure. Like the next step, it felt like, Everything, uh, Matt and I, the life of our next chapter, everything rode on getting approved for commissioning. Because then I would get a job, then we would move back to Kentucky, I'd have a church assignment, and our lives could continue as I had planned, right? (laughs) So there's a tremendous amount of pressure. That one, uh, when I was listing out some of those ways that the vices, the one that said, like, the worry over a performance or a task, like, that that was me in working on that commissioning work for those several months in the spring of 2015. And about that time, there was an old song on like the Christian radio station. I don't even remember who it was by. I should have looked that up. But it was the audience of one. Do you know um, Do you know that one? I'll look it up. It's a really great song. Thinking about the platforms that we're on in our lives and who, who, who is the audience? Who are we seeking to, big daddy weave, thank you. Who are we seeking to impress? Who are we seeking approval from? I mean, I was getting so anxious and all worked up about saying the right thing and doing the right thing and, and messing this up and getting deferred, right? Like it was just, I, I was not myself. I was bent in, right, on, on this. I didn't intend to be self-centered, but I was so consumed by this sort of stress and anxiety and grief that I, I wasn't acting like myself either. Ask Matt, but maybe not today. <laughs> I was not acting like myself either. It's in our first year of marriage. There's lots of great stories there. You know, taking out my stress on other people that I love deeply around me. Until I heard that song, and that became my prayer. The audience of one. You are the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God, may everything I do, may all of this work that I am preparing for be for your glory and not for mine for your approval, whether I'm commissioned or not, whether I'm clergy or not, I know what you've called me to and I know I can do this work, whether I get to this next step or not, may it be for your glory and not for mine. And there was still some wrestling in that season, but it got me through. Whose approval are you seeking and why? Who's the audience that you're in front of Maybe let's consider that audience of one this week. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for who you are, for these lessons and gifts. That God, you you teach us these things, the example of Christ, this sort of moral exemplar who, who lived this earth and yet did not sin, who faced every temptation that we ever have and yet was without sin. And not to make us feel unworthy or useless or that we could never measure up. But that you sent the gift of your son to invite us into this sort of freedom and relationship with you. That it's true, on our own, we could never live the way that you designed us to live in the beginning, before the fall, before sin and pride entered in. And so we come before you this morning, O God. And we acknowledge that we too are sinners. That we too cannot will or know or do good without you at work in our hearts. 
we acknowledge that it is Jesus, our divine healer, whom we need, his grace, in order to correct and heal and set right some of these vices in our own heart. God, as you have drawn to mind places of, of pride and of vainglory in our own lives, would you meet us in our shame? Would you meet us in our awareness? taste the sweetness of your grace here this morning as we prepare our hearts to approach your communion table once again. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>